Support comes from Austin Water, helping residents reduce water use while protecting Austin's precious resource during the drought conditions with MyATX Water, providing near real-time water use data, tips, and leak alerts. More at austinwater.org. From KUT and KUTX Studios. Okay, that's good. That's good. Hey, welcome to the second episode of This Song. I am Elizabeth McQueen. I'm PJ Harrington. And uh, we are here to talk with other artists about the songs that are axes upon which their soul turns. I've been working on that one, PJ. Does that work? <laughs> I like it. Okay, thank you very much. So, so you know, there are these, uh, I call them... V-I-S is very important songs in people's lives. And I I want to hear about them, and you want to hear about them, and we hope that people listening want to hear about them. All right, so let's get started with Brian Beatty. Brian Beatty is a man who literally does it all. Yeah, produces records, mixes, engineers. He will make your record for you. He will play on it, <laughs> produce it, and engineer it. And, you know, he's produced records for Ockerville River and Dead Milkmen. Um, Rocky Erickson, Shearwater. Yeah, and he's mixed records and played on records by people like Bill Callahan. He's done, and these records are some pretty cool records. Yeah. Uh, he, lot, lots of edge. He, yeah, he has, he has a good aesthetic. Brian Beatty does. And he recently did something totally new. He created a musical called Ivy in the Wicker Suitcase. He's the guy that does it all. He totally does. He actually now does it all. He got Grace London and Kathy McCarty and Will Sheff and uh, Daniel Johnston and Bill Callahan together. And he wrote this musical and they all put it on recently at the State Theater in Austin. Which is a great room. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So... I'm really interested to hear what his song is, and I actually really love his song. Let's yeah. hear it. Okay, here, here we go. Brian Beatty. This song, it's kind of weird that this would be such an important song to me, but I remember I was seven years old. I was at my grandmother's house in an apartment, and and my family was about to leave. We were visiting, but I, I heard a little bit of a, people shuffling around, getting ready to go, and I was all by myself, and I wandered towards the back of the apartment, and there was a little AM radio, a little dusty AM radio sitting on a shelf, and I got closer and closer to it, and it was playing the song called Build Me Up Buttercup by The Foundations. And, um, and I think I might have heard that song, a little bit of it before then at some point, but that was, but, but that's the moment I remember it. Just I just walking closer and closer to that radio, and all the just perfect pop beauty of that little thing, just like coming of that tiny radio, and I could I could hear everything, and it was so much fun, and it was like it was such a moving moment of music, and I, don't, I just because it's such a it's such a I don't know it's just the the melody and the chord progression and just the level of energy, and it's so much fun. Uh, but I, I, 
it took me, you know, years later, I was thinking, what was that thing that I loved so much? And I remember listening to the song and playing it in my band, Glass Eye, and people saying, are you making fun of that song? I was like, making fun of it? That song's so fine. You know, I love that song. But uh, yeah, we covered it, and it was lots of fun to do, but I couldn't do justice to the way he uh, he sings that song and that, because he, he just starts with that scream, you know, that high scream and everything. And yeah. then, so immediately you're sort of like pinned back to the wall. What's going on here? What do you It's not a real band. The foundations. It's not a, the foundations weren't a real band. No, I think there. I can't remember the name of the songwriter, but there was a guy. He wrote three or four huge hits right around then, and they would just get a bunch of studio musicians in there and uh, have someone and make up a name of a band and record it, and the record label would put it out, and it would be a hit because because they knew it would be a hit because it was a good song and because they had the structure, you know, for making anything into a hit. They wanted to make a hit back then. And it really was made to be something that was just for pure joy and consumption, not really something supposed to be a piece of art particularly, but it just, it it blew me away. It totally blew me away. Was there sure. a time when you were embarrassed of like, I think there was, a, there, in my, in my early twenties, I would think at that point, you know, in post punk new wave era, even though everyone loved the, the monkeys, it was, it was cool to love the monkeys. It wasn't cool to love the Archies, particularly. But some people, you know. But the the, the that was the sort of uh, you know the 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 foundations was kind of like the Archies. It's some gratuitous pop for you know purely made for that. But it was obviously made by, made by people who love gratuitous pop, you know. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I I don't know. What was the question? I don't really know. <laughs> It's that thing that songs do the first time you hear them. You might not know what it's done, but if it's a good song, you might not know it, but it's made a shelf inside your brain, a little spot for it to live inside your brain. And you won't really know it till the second time you hear it. And the second time you hear it, you go, oh my God, that is a beautiful song. So that, I think I must have heard it a little bit, but it was that moment at my grandma's house where I heard it that second time where it, I realized that it was like part of my body already. And I, and I just, just stood there staring at the little radio for three minutes till it was over, or two minutes and 30 seconds or whatever. PJ, can we just listen to Build Me Up Buttercup um, on a loop for the rest of the day? I've got it in my headphones now. Yeah, I mean, come on. That's such a great song. And he's right. It's that scream in the beginning that like, (laughs) wow. I want that to be my song. Yeah. You want to have written that song and (laughs) sung it. Yes. That's right. We We should form a tribute band to the foundations. Just so we can play Build Me Up Buttercup. That's the only song we play. Over and over Over again. Over and over again. (laughs) Anyway, that's a great song. And I loved hearing Brian Beattie talk about it because you... He sounds as excited about it as he probably was the first time he heard it. It's his song. It's his song. So I love it. Um, next up, we have Kathy McCarty, who was in a band with Brian Beattie for a long time in the 80s and 90s called Glass, Glass Eye. Eye. Yeah, they did um, a lot of cool stuff, and they are still working together. Really influential, and, and they, got some, they, got, they got a lot of love from the critics. Yes, they did. And they are still beloved in Austin, Texas. Absolutely. Yes, and uh, they are still collaborating, Brian and Kathy, because she is in Ivy in the Wicker Suitcase. She plays the mom. And, uh, and he also worked on a few of her records. 
Yes, yes. I think he did. He produce Dead Dog's Eyeball, which was he did. He did. Okay, which was a tribute to Daniel Johnson. Daniel Johnson, yeah, yeah. and with one of my favorite engineers. And who's that? Stuart Sullivan. Ooh. Ooh, we should get Stuart Sullivan in here. That'll be a good one. Yeah, that'll be a good one. Ah, oh, okay. back to Kathy McCarty though. She is a beautiful person to talk to. I had a great time talking to her, and um, she also had a song that she heard when she was very young that kind of like set her on a course it charted her future path uh by an artist that's definitely one of my favorites of all time i think this artist may be everybody's favorite i hope hope so i hope so okay here we go let's listen to kathy mccarty this is her song hey i'm here with kathy McCarty. It's McCarty, right? I want to uh-huh. say McCarthy because of Everyone Joseph does. McCarthy, yeah. but I know it's McCarty. I'm here with Kathy McCarty, and I'm wondering um, what that really important song is for you. Well, the th- thinking about it, I've got to go into a little bit of history. I grew up during a time that a lot of people that were in my parents' age group and in the location that they were at, which was New England, mm-hmm. were really into the folk revival movement. And so they listened to... All these different artists just getting up in in a very genuine fashion compared to what had previously been going on musically, singing songs that were hundreds of years old, singing songs like Barbara Allen Mm -hmm. and uh, Irish music, and the Clancy Brothers were really big at my house. That's what I grew up hearing. Hey, whiskey or the devil, you're leading me astray over hills and mountains and to America. All these songs that I had heard were these songs that had stood the test of time. <laughs> and, and I just thought these were the songs that existed. Then I remember finding out that one of the songs that was on rotation with all these bands was Blowing in the Wind. Right. And that the guy who wrote it was actually alive. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? A guy living at that moment had written this, uh, not someone hundreds of years ago, but his song fit in with all his other songs, and he was alive. And I remember contemplating this and thinking, how could anyone write a song that good now? <laughs> you know, like, so I'm no. guessing you didn't, like, listen to the radio or pop music No, no, or I just heard like the that. records that my parents played. I didn't have a radio. At that time, you had parents had to buy you one. You know, you had to have, right. to have your own radio. I don't think I had my own radio until I was in junior high or something. That gave me this idea. At the time, I this, is, this sounds kind of weird, but I had decided that I was going to dedicate my life to being a poet. I decided this when I was about five or six years old. What? Yes. And so I was going to be a poet. I was writing poetry, and it was really, really bad, most of it. Like, summer is fun, playing in the sun. That was one of my That's that was good. One hey, of my for lines. five, that's really good. Not bad. But, but when I discovered that these people that were alive were, like, writing songs, and they were, like, good, like, as good as old folk songs, then I thought, I can set my poetry to music. And that's the way I can get people to listen to it. Oh, because even at that young, you're like, yeah. I know people are not going to listen to it. Well, you kind of realize that people poetry. aren't that into listening to your poetry. And like people just, I mean, at that time, I mean, maybe 150 years ago, people would go hear poets. But, you know, in the 60s in America, it was, I guess there were some people listening to poets in San Francisco, but not where I was. And yeah, yeah. It just, culturally, it's been kind of like a 
kind of a nobody cares kind of thing, poetry, for a while now. Yeah. Longer than it should have been, I might add. And uh, so anyway, that, so that was, even though that song isn't like my most favorite song ever, it's probably the most important song because it made me realize, hey, I can just do like this guy did and set my poems to music. And then people will listen to it and think about them. And that's kind of true because people do listen to lyrics of songs and think about them and love them or be moved by them more than, uh, more than written poetry. And so eventually I uh, managed to get my hands on a guitar and get guitar lessons. With the, with the, I, my, in my mind, the only reason I was doing this was so that I could set my poems to music. Wow. So, so uh, when did you get a guitar? From the time you well, hear... I got it when I was about 13. Wow. So you hear Bob Dylan at like... Five yeah, or six. Yeah. And, then and it's like sticking with you all the way until with you're me. 13. I actually didn't even really write a decent song until I was probably 20. It was probably the, the first time I wrote a song that I'm not embarrassed of. And then did you feel like, I've done it? Like well, the I felt like I, I felt like to f- do when I was five. Yeah, I, I did. I mean, I felt like a lot of relief, really, because I was already playing in a band and I was forcing to play my bad songs. Oh. And so then it was embarrassing. You know, so so when I finally wrote a good song, I was like, oh, thank God. Thank God I have it in me. But that, I think that would be have to be uh, my song, you know, yeah. would be the, realizing that people are doing this, you know, now. This is possible. This, this is, is possible. a possibility. This is it's not, not like, just for people who are 150 to 600 yeah, years old. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. How many roads must a man walk before you call him a man? Blowing in the Wind, a great song. And I love the idea that there are these certain songs that you encounter in your life that open you up to an entire world of possibility. Like, I did not know that someone living could actually write a song that someone would listen to. And so now I'm going to use that as a vehicle for my poetry. I mean, that that's what I love. That song moved uh, a lot of people. As a matter of fact, we sang that uh, in my in church in my grade school. Really? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, of course, before that, it was uh, a huge theme in the civil rights movement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that song opened a lot of people up to getting involved in the civil rights movement back the, in the, the day. The power of a song. Yeah, it, that is that is a seriously powerful song. So now we move on to your current boss, my former boss, Mr. Ray, Ray Benson. Benson. And I sat down with him in his office at Bismo Studios, and um, he told me what his song was. And I have to say, you could have knocked me over with a feather when I found out what his song was, because I fully expected him to say something by Bob Wills. And if not Bob Wills, maybe something more inside, Western Swing, little Milton Brown, perhaps. But that is not the way that he went. So let's, uh, let's listen to a little Ray Benson. What is it? Oh, you're going to hear. Here we go. I'm sitting here with Ray Benson in his studio, totally off the cuff. We've never talked about this before. So, Ray, what well, is... All those years on the road, we've never talked about this. We've never talked about this. So, right. Ray, what is what is this song for you, the song that you you feel like the world should know about and that yeah. really touches you? Definitely. I, I will pick John Coltrane, Say It Over and Over Again, uh, from the album Ballad. <laughs> I first heard it back in the 60s, I guess, late 60s. Um, I actually went to see John Coltrane, uh, and he was very avant-garde, but did not play the song. 
but it was on an album called Ballads, and they just fell in love with it. And then many years later, on our own KUT, uh, uh, Paul Ray used it as his theme song, and I would hear it every time he played uh, it to open his show. It's just, it's, it's an incredible song. It's a standard ballad. But to have John Coltrane and this incredible group of musicians play it in a very simple but, but moving way was, uh, is, is a real lesson in simplicity. Was it more about emotion for you then than it was about playing, like great players playing in a real emotional way? Is that? Yeah, it was totally about being emo- about the emotion in it and, and the fact that you could play simply and yet have such power. You know. And do you think that that's something that you tried to then kind of work into the the way that you do music or the way that you play? Yeah, it was it was the same thing as when I remember saying. Uh, the object is to play one note that, that really reaches people. So the, the ability to say, okay, I really want to be able to play as, as, as much of a virtuoso manner as possible, but really what I really want to do is to play simply and to sing one note that changes the world. <laughs> I like that, one note that changes the world, yeah. one note that makes people kind of feel. Yeah, yeah. That's what music can and uh, can do. And, uh, so that was it's 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 really the intensity of of the of that song is always just played to my not too many notes. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you expect him to say like "faded love," perhaps, or "stay all night." I, I don't know. I the, I really thought it was going to be. Yeah, but you know that guys just got a. a a, a, a broad interest in American music. He does. He does. He has a deep well of information. Yeah, and John Coltrane certainly fits yeah, in that. For sure. For sure. I actually really enjoyed seeing that side of Ray. For sure. And look, I think we're at the end of our second podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, this song was produced by myself and PJ Harrington. It was engineered by Cliff Hargrove. And mixed by myself and my wonderful husband, David Sanger. And uh, if you have any requests or questions or anything, you can email us. Or you can tweet us. Yes. You can email us at this song at KUTX.org. Or you can tweet us at... This song. I don't don't know the address. (laughs) It's at this song. At, At this song is what I meant to say. Okay, well, uh, we're working on another episode. In our next episode, we're going to have a little Pokey Lafarge and some Hal Ketchum for sure. So stay tuned for that. Okay, thanks a lot.
KUT's next AT Explained live show is April 3rd. Brand new stories about Austin's people, places, and culture told live on stage by your favorite KUT journalists. I've never gotten any specific invites from Steiner Ranch. And that's about the time Charlie chomped down on that chicken. I will hypnotize you into securing my law services. Join us April 3rd at the Paramount Theater for KUT's next AT Explained Live. Tickets are on sale now. Get them at austintheater.org and we'll see you there.